Thanks for listening to the City Church Podcast. This sermon is part of our series entitled Glorious Perspective, where we will see how the Sermon on the Mount outlines God's plan for a life of joy. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org. In AD 98, these events were recorded. It says, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The masked revelers screamed and shouted as they made their way through the streets of Ephesus, banging their sticks on the ground, a wall, or a passing cart to make noise, and dancing before the statue of the god they were celebrating. The feast of Katajan was a major moneymaker for the craftsmen and major priests of the area. And so there's always great support in the community of the festivities surrounding that day. Great support, that is, among all but the growing Christian church in Ephesus. Timothy. Now the elderly pastor of that church hardly paid attention to the event. In fact, he had forgotten that it would be taking place on that day as he walked down the street. He was more concerned with the growing pressure on the church because of Emperor Diocletian's recent exile of the Apostle John to the island of Patmos that was not far to the southwest, and the growing tension in the community between the pagans and Christians as a result. Timothy remembered what the church had gone through under Nero. He had, in fact, been present at Paul's imprisonment and execution in Rome. And it looked like the church would be going through much of the same under Diocletian. So when Timothy turned the corner and walked right into the procession of revelers, he was more appalled than ever at the foolishness of it. Brothers, sisters, he said, why do you worship and sacrifice to a statue made with human hands that is no God? And the true God of all sent his own sons that you could know him and the joy of his righteousness. This partying is foolish and self-destructive. Why celebrate a dead statue and give place to your lusts when you can know the God of heaven and the real joy of walking in his ways? One of the priests at the lead came forward and roughly pushed Timothy out of the way. Leave us alone, old man. We will do as we please. Yet the procession had stopped. It was obvious some in the crowd were wondering at what Timothy had said. So Timothy continued, do as you please. And what if what pleases you is a trap? What if it is a bond that will, make, that will take your life from you before you have even lived and chain you to regret and satisfaction? Jesus came that you might have life and life abundantly. Why accept the chains of sin when you can live free in his spirit? Enough, I said, screamed the priest, bringing his stick down upon Timothy as hard as he could. The others stood and stared. The priest was not caught for a minute by their wonder. Blasphemy, blasphemy. Did you not hear what he said? He called Diana a false god and a curse. He deserves... Not to live. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Kill him. Kill him. And he brought his stick down upon Timothy again. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Another called behind him, raising his stick along with the priest. The other soon joined in, pounding Timothy with sticks or rocks and kicking him to the side of the road, out of the way, so that they could continue their parade. A group of Christians soon collected the bishop and took him home to be cared for. Timothy died of the bruises and injuries two days later. It's the Timothy that Paul wrote his letters to, recorded in the New Testament as First and Second Timothy. Many of you have read those letters. Many of you probably don't know how the end of his life finished. This is an account of it. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is where we are this morning. I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying this series on the Beatitudes that we've been in over the last several weeks. 
It's been incredible to see how God has taken these things that seem to be flipped on their head and countercultural and taken them and said, this is what life in Christ looks like. This is what life following Jesus actually looks like. I've got the great joy this morning of delivering just this last one, this eighth one, Blessed Are the Persecuted. Justin, who has been doing such an incredible job bringing us through this, is enjoying a Sunday off so that he can get ahead on sermon prep for the next series that we're in starting next week, a series called Game Changers, which is going to be awesome. It's a three-week series on small changes that you make in your life that have dramatic and life-altering impact. And so really hope you'll be joining us for that. It's going to be great. Roger, one of our elders, is preaching up in New Haven. Luke is doing the same in Meriden. And... Uh, Really just glad to be here. You know, as we look at this beatitude, at first it seems quite different from the other ones, doesn't it? What we've been looking at is this description of the Christian life in Jesus. And the other ones were more descriptive of what you ought to be. Meekness, poor in spirit. This one almost, almost reads like a result, doesn't it? Almost reads like, boy, as you, as you look at these first seven, you get to this number eight. Some scholars don't even actually include it as a beatitude because it reads completely different. But really, what I, what I see it as Jesus was delivering this, it's almost like he's saying, I tell you what, if these first seven, what we call the Beatitudes, become a part of your life and evermore begin to shape who you are, this is what happens. It's the result of that. If you remember, this is, this is not really a, a list, per se, of things to be gone after individually. You remember, they, they kind of stack one on top of each other. You remember the analogy that Justin's been using and showing of boxes? And really, these, this list of eight Beatitudes, they, they stack one on top of each other. You can't take one out. Otherwise, they all kind of fall apart because really it's this, this process of one building on top of one another. And so we started the first week, if you remember, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This poverty of spirit that you and I are helpless before God. That we're spiritually poor, like a helpless beggar. That we, we come to God spiritually bankrupt with nothing to offer Him. We're utterly undone by just the darkness and selfishness of our hearts. And we get to a place where we say, God, I have nothing to offer you. God, I have nothing that, that I can give to you. I'm poor before you, God spiritually bankrupt. And, and so when we get to this place, it leads us into our second one, right? Godly sorrow, where we learn to mourn over our sin. We learn that uh, the things in us that grieve the heart of God are not things that we take lightly, but instead are things that we are going to go after and be pulling up the roots on, going after uh, regularly with accountability, not allowing them to be a part of our lives going forward. And so we learn to mourn over our sin, and the promise in that is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus tells us is that in our mourning, the Holy Spirit comforts us with the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. As we see that our sin is no longer held against us at the cross, that Jesus can comfort us because he wasn't comforted at the cross. He's, allowed to, he's able to give that to us on behalf of what he's done. And so as we see the beauty of Jesus we begin to mourn over our sin, and what that leads us to is this trust that, boy, as Jesus has taken care of me at the cross, he will take care of me going forward. And so I don't need to fight for myself. And so this inner belief that God is for me, this inner belief that God will care for me, that God is loving and a father, and what develops in us is this meekness. You remember that from, from week three? As we become convinced that God cares for us, I learn to trust him. 
and knowing that He is the sovereign creator of all things, it allows me to live beyond myself. And as Jesus begins to become all the more beautiful in my mind, I see that He is the source of everything. This hunger and this thirst for righteousness begins to take root in my heart. And I begin to pursue the things of Him. As I learn that only the righteousness of Christ will satisfy. And as that continues, I become more and more spiritually aware of what's going on around me. My heart for those in my community, for those I work with, for those in my family begins to grow. Because I know that only the righteousness of Jesus can satisfy. And so as I see that, I become more spiritually aware and compassion develops in my heart. And as I act on that compassion, it's biblical mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Remember the story about the Good Samaritan? It wasn't just that he saw the need, it's that he acted on it. Met the needs of the man who was hurting. As mercy and compassion just become a a bigger part of my life, my self-centeredness and my fear of man just begin to fall off in light of gospel approval and gospel responsibility that I have in Jesus. And as that happens, this, this tapestry of sort begins to weave together what develops in me is the heart of a peacemaker. I pursue peace between myself and others. I pursue peace between myself and God. I become the person who pursues peace between God and others. I become a peacemaker. And so as we finish up this series on the Beatitudes, we, we pull back and we realize that every single one of them seems to fly in the face of what we see around us, doesn't it? It makes no sense apart from Jesus. And yet here we are again in Matthew chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. We'll read 10 through 12. We say, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we've arrived at the end. Eight weeks in this. It's been really, really great. I don't know about you, but I'm so, I'm so grateful for the insight that our pastor brings every week to us. Are you thankful for that? You know, he really does such an incredible job. I know. Thank you for clapping for him. That was wonderful. He'll be happy to hear that, I'm sure, on the podcast. Really thankful, though. You know, it doesn't make any sense to be poor in spirit apart from Jesus. Why would we be merciful? Why would we actually pursue meekness as a lifestyle? Why would we want these things? They fly against everything we see in marketing. It's everything we see on our TVs. It makes no sense apart from Christ. And so I just want to encourage you, just if you've missed any of the teachings in this series, they really do stack and grow from one another. And so I encourage you to go back and listen to them. But really the question, I mean, mean, why would we mourn over our sin? Why Why would we be that person who allows others to go before us were it not for Christ? You know, the truth is, as, as you begin to pursue the things of Jesus and these descriptors that Jesus has been using in the life of the Beatitudes begin to grow in your heart and you begin to change and your life becomes transformed, to the degree that that happens, the degree that these first seven things become a reality in your life will be matched with the degree 
that this eighth one becomes a reality for you. You know, did you ever take a science class maybe in, uh, in high school or college, one of those labs? Some of you know my story. Before I started working in the church world, I was an engineer. And so all throughout college, the physics and chemistries, those, those were my, my reality. And so I remember being so fascinated in my physics lab in college at how you can take two elements who on their own are just benign and innocuous, they're harmless, but then you put them together and they become this explosive combination. I remember when we did the, uh, some of you maybe have done this, you take water and sodium. And so we got this big bucket of water and then you got this little piece of sodium, water, which is the essence of life, sodium, which is so, so common, you add it to chloride, and it becomes table salt. I mean, it's everywhere. And you take these two things, and you get this big bucket of water, and you take just this little, this little hint of sodium, this little cube maybe, and you put it in there, and you take a couple steps back, because in about five seconds, there's this violent explosion between water and sodium. Two things that are on their own are, are completely helpful, completely fine. Water, the element of life. Sodium, this common thing. You put them together and they quite literally explode. And so I've been thinking about how when you take the peacemaking heart of Jesus that he's been teaching us about and you combine this with the purity and the holiness of Jesus that he describes and the purity of heart, just like water and sodium. These two things that on their own seem perfectly fine and you take them and you put them together. It's like this volatile combination. The peace of Christ, the water, if you will. The peace of Christ cannot help but move forward in making peace between myself and others, making peace between first God and myself, and then seeing others and saying, boy, you need peace with God. It's like you can't help that because that's a part of who you are. And yet you flip that with the purity in heart, the the sodium, if you will, the, the holiness of his character. And you can't but stand for purity and for justice. And then you combine these two things, and what happens is your life becomes this explosive situation to those around you. See, water on its own isn't, isn't bothersome. It's important. You know it's, it's critical towards your life. You can only last but a few days without it. And just like peace, peace is critical for life. But see, if you lose one of the, the two things, on their own, water's fine. On its own, sodium is fine. If you lose the peace or the purity of God, nothing happens you lose the peace of God, you become this person who stands on the corner shouting the end is near and you become completely irrelevant. But on the other hand, if you lose the purity of Jesus, you become this kind, gentle person who's never honest with anyone, who never says, you need a savior. You live your life not being honest with those around you. But when the peace of Christ and the purity of Christ come together, you can't help but go after peace between these folks that you know and love and God. And then you say at the same time, but the truth is there's sin in your life and it needs to be paid for. But the peace of Christ says it can, but the purity of Christ says there is wrath. There is justice. And so you put these two things together. Maybe you've seen it in your own life. It's where the explosion of persecution finds its fuel. You know, I remember a few summers ago, I had the opportunity to go to India. Anybody ever been to India before? Yeah, a number of you. You know, India is um, just a wild place. I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to do some traveling, been to Africa, and been to post-earthquake Haiti and places like that, but I've never seen a place before like India. 
Where we were, it's hot all the time. It's like 98 degrees whether it's day or night. And so it's hot during the day, and at night you just can't sleep. And so after about four days of that, your mind feels like it's about to break because you haven't slept in, you know, 72 hours or whatever it is. But I remember we spent time with this incredible organization called Gospel for Tribals. It's this organization that has 10 to 15 orphanages. It's got Bible colleges. They have a couple leper colonies that we would go and serve food at. Just this incredible, incredible organization. And the guy who runs it is this guy named Pastor Jacob. And I'll never forget a night we sat down with him. We'd been there maybe five or six days. And he began to tell us his story. And among other things, his story was filled with jail, with beating. He was telling us how, how his family had been on regular occasions threatened. His life is threatened almost all the time. Where we were, there was this really radical Hinduism that was constantly going after the Christians in the area. I remember our bus was being followed by these Hindu, Hindu radicals. And I took a group of high school students there, and the director of the trip said, I don't think I'm going to take the students back here. This is, this is completely, completely unsafe. And I remember the stories of just, just real persecution that I sat back and went, man, I know nothing about that. I know nothing about that life of having just my life threatened on a regular basis. Of the thought of being killed actually being a reality. And what you need to know is that around the world, 100 million Christians right now live in threat. Physical threat. Open Doors USA, who tracks this, this topic of persecution, said 2014 was the worst year on record for persecution. About 5,000 lives were recorded as being taken from Christians through murder or execution. Some of you have seen things lately with ISIS and beheadings and just these, these terrible things that have happened. And so where does that leave us, right? If, if persecution is happening around the world, but that's not our reality right now, is there actually anything in this for us? Does this apply to us in any way? The truth is, that the words of Jesus are relevant for us, not just because there's 100 million Christians whose lives are being threatened around the world right now, but because the truth is, for every single one of us who sits here this morning, dead set on putting God first in your life, and in your work, and in your family, you will, wait long enough, inevitably run into opposition of some form. Another way to translate that phrase, blessed are the persecuted, is happy are the harassed. If what we've been talking about over the last seven weeks becomes a reality in you, you will find yourself harassed. You will find yourself with this being true for you. Maybe your life isn't threatened. Maybe you're not in fear of that, but maybe your job gets threatened. Maybe you begin to have trouble with, with friends because your life and their life begins to take two different paths. If you pursue Jesus, he tells us, promises us, you will have opposition. It's going to be a part of your life. Jesus doesn't say if, he says when. And so it's interesting to note here that what Jesus says will be the cause of persecution is his righteousness. I just want you to know that. Righteousness that is a result of Jesus. It's our attachment to Christ that makes us unique. And so you might, you might be saying to me, to me, Mike, why would my life offend other people? 
You talk about bumping into opposition or my life being harassed. I mean, why would that actually happen? I don't really understand. And the truth is, we look at Christ and we see this was, this was his reality all through his time on earth. The man who best exhibited these beatitudes, that whole list of meekness and mercy, of purity of heart, of peacemaking, these things found their truth in him and few people have been harassed like Jesus. And so the question of why would this happen to me, we need only look at his life. We find examples all over the place. I was looking at Luke chapter 16 this week. You know, it's so interesting to see how Jesus' strongest words were always saved for the religious leaders of the day. Jesus wasn't going after those who were far from him and ridiculing them and going against them. We always find him bumping up against the religious leaders of the day. It's, it's the crew who he's always doing battle with, it seems. And his life is, is constantly bumping up in them against them. Because you see, the peacemaker in Jesus couldn't help but want to minister to these religious leaders. These were the men who were in charge of shaping the hearts and minds spiritually of the nation of Israel. They had an incredibly important responsibility. And so Jesus, as a peacemaker, it keeps going after them, keeps going after them. He doesn't just relent and disappear. It's like his interactions with them just continue and continue. And so there's this chapter here in Luke 16. And it shows us an example of, of what happens. So Jesus picks it up in verse 13. just want to read this for you. He's, he's telling this parable about a manager and how he handles his money. And as Jesus often does, he tells a story. And we get to the end and he tells us the why behind the story. But he's told this parable about this manager. And he gets to verse 13. He says, here's what's up. Verse, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's, he's saying, you guys have chosen to love money more than God. And the purity, the pure in heartness of Jesus cannot help but speak against that. And so what he finds immediately is this, this mockery begins to take place. Verse 15 says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. See, because these men, it says, were lovers of money, not lovers of God. In order to justify themselves, what do they do? They go after Jesus. They choose to mock Jesus. And so Jesus says right back to them, he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So do you see what's happening here? I want to show you why, as you pursue Christ... As you long to be more like Him, as you choose to mourn over your sin, as you choose to be merciful, you can expect opposition. See, He says to these Pharisees, He says, things are out of order in your life. See, and the Pharisees react strongly because the priorities that they've made don't line up with the priorities that Jesus says are from God. And so what do they do? They choose to step back and justify themselves by mocking him, by trying to get rid of his credibility. And Jesus, in fairness to him, really isn't trying to be a pain here. He's not trying to be difficult. He's not trying to stir things up. He's not trying to be even antagonistic. He's just being pure. He's just being honest. He's being just. He's being the very things that we love about him. He's stating the truth. And so for every 
Pharisee standing there, every single one who loves money more than God, he's saying, if you are going to see me as the Messiah, if you are going to actually learn that I am the Savior that God has sent for you, you've got to let go of your love for money. Because that is keeping you from wholeness. That is keeping you from salvation. Jesus goes right to the heart of the thing that is putting distance between them and God. But instead of, instead of believing him to justify that, what do they do? They choose to mock him. And so that's how self-justification works. And that's how you're going to bump into it. It's the, reason while, while, it's the reason that while you may not feel the physical persecution that believers around the world around the world feel, you will feel the marks of living a countercultural life. Jesus says it's an issue of when, not if. You know, about three weeks ago, Brittany and I righted a serious wrong in my life. I had never seen the movie Rudy. Anybody seen that? Come on, it's a pretty common, common sports movie. It was like that one in Hoosiers growing up, if you like sports. Um, Hoosiers I had seen, Rudy I had never seen. And so we came across it on Netflix the other day, and my wife made me watch it because there was something wrong with the fact that I had never seen it. And so if you know the story of Rudy, it's this, this small-town kid. He's short, he's unathletic, and uh, he wants to play Notre Dame football. He longs to be a football player, but he's got no talent, he's got no money, he's not smart enough to get into Notre Dame. And so, long story short, it's the story of grit and determination, and through this crazy circumstances, he finds himself at Notre Dame and on the practice football team. And so what happens is, he just, day after day, because he's just this hard worker and diligent, he is going after it, and he's getting pummeled day after day. His nose is bleeding through like half the movie, it seems like. He's always getting tossed into this ground by these six foot eight, 300 pound linemen who are just pile driving him into the ground. And every time he snaps back up, gets back on the line and, and goes for another, another play. But there are, the guys, there are these other guys on the practice team. And so they're getting tired of him making them look bad. And so there's this great scene where he's in the locker room. He's got ice on his shoulders. I think his legs are in a bath because he's getting beat up so regularly. And one of the other practice players comes in. He says, man, your work ethic is making us look bad. What does he do? He starts harassing Rudy because of his work ethic. And he's asking him to tone it down so that it wouldn't show everyone else's laziness. See, Rudy's work ethic was just like highlighting and putting on display the lazy work ethic of these other guys. And so they come in and they're just like, enough. You're making us look terrible. We're going to do whatever we need to do to stop you from making us look bad. Because his work ethic was offensive to those who chose laziness. And the truth is that if you choose to live a life that is simple and yet happy, you will put the luxurious lifestyle, you will show the folly in that. If you choose to walk humbly before God and others, you expose the evil of pride. If you prefer others over yourself, you end up indicting those who climb over others for power. When you are merciful, you put the cruelty of others on display. If you cherish chastity, your very life will be an attack on our society's casual view of sex. When you speak with compassion, you are a great antithesis to the callous heart. Like Rudy, when you work with earnest, you put the other's laziness on display. And when you choose to live with eternity in mind, 
you display the madness of living as though this life is all there is. And so maybe you've bumped into this. Maybe you didn't really realize exactly what it was. Maybe, maybe at your job you've really had to wrestle with just the people you work with. Maybe you're a guy and there's just crass jokes going all the time. And so you've taken a stand and just said, you know what? I'm just not going to laugh at those anymore. And the guys begin to rib you and call you prude and say, why would you bother not laughing at that? Why, why would you let that affect you? And you just say, man, that, that's not for me. And you begin to know what that harassment feels like. Maybe you've dated someone and you've said, the truth is, I'm not going there. I'm not crossing those boundaries. And that person broke up with you. I was with a guy the other day who said, man, I, I made a stand for what I was going to allow to happen in our relationship. And my girlfriend broke up with me. Maybe you felt the pain of that. And yet Jesus, as he so often does, what does he say here? In light of that 20-minute introduction on persecution, which I understand was not happy and uplifting, but that's what Jesus says is your reality. And all of that, what does he choose to say? He uses the word blessed to describe it. And it's almost like, I'm sorry, come again, Jesus? Like, what, what was that word to describe it? Not just like, bear it. You know, I would expect him to say, Bear the persecution. It's going to be worth it. No, no, no. He says blessed, right? He says happy. And then the classic Jesus style, he goes even a step further. And he instructs us to rejoice and be glad. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You know, it's like, ah, how on earth am I supposed to do that? How on earth am I supposed to rejoice in the face of harassment? Jesus, what do you know that I don't know? I see there's, there's really one of two options that are going on here. Jesus is either just this extremely insensitive rookie theologian who knows nothing about the pain and difficulty that you and I have, or he knows of a reality that is so good and so sweet and beyond anything we could ever imagine. He could stand before a group of people and say, when persecution comes on account of me, rejoice and be glad. Jesus can say this because he knows that beyond any shadow of a doubt, the reward that awaits you is beyond anything you'll face here on the earth. Undoubtedly, there is mystery in this. I understand that. Jesus is not calling us to long for persecution. He's not calling us to go hunt for it in some sadistic way. There's absolutely mystery in having joy in the midst of agony. The mystery of, of gladness being intertwined with groaning when your name is being slandered on, slandered on the job. But Jesus promises elsewhere in Scripture this incredible thing. He just says, I will give you back a hundredfold anything you bear in my name. This incredible promise. And so the degree that which you believe what he says is the degree that you will be able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. That's what he tells us. Sometimes it feels like it's a little bit hard to stomach. Sometimes it feels like, Jesus, can that really be true? He says, yes. And what does he say? He says, great is your reward in heaven. You know why you and I 
can count it all joy. Why we can rejoice because of the promise. The promise he gives us here. The promise that he bookends the Beatitudes with. That he opens up poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How does he finish this one here? Same promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise Jesus gives us is this. Jesus. That's what he promises us. See, what Jesus says is there's nothing that anyone can do that will take that away from you. There's no job you can lose that will affect the great reward you have in heaven. There's nothing anyone can do to you that will take my love from you. There's nothing anyone can do that will remove the adoption I've placed on you as I brought you into my family. So what does he say? He says, rejoice and be glad, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what are we going to do? What does Jesus have for us in this? I just have two really brief, practical things that if this is going to be our reality, and listen, I get it that you might say right now, man, the honest truth is I'm not experiencing any of this. And there are seasons where perhaps you don't. But Jesus promises always, if you become like me, you will be harassed. You will bump into opposition. And so the first thing I just want to put before you is this is don't be surprised. I'll invite the band up as we come to a close here. But Jesus says to expect it. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes to Timothy, the very man whose life we just saw how it was snuffed out back in A.D. 98. And Paul writes this. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And several years after Timothy read that letter, he saw it firsthand when he gave his life for the cause of the gospel. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so Jesus anticipated that people will be offended by your life. And there are those who want to preach that when you begin to follow Jesus, you are healthy, that you're going to get a raise at your job, that your family is going to suddenly get better, that your kids are going to grow up to love him. And the truth is, God may give you those things, but the promise that he has for you, the promise of joy, the promise of, of incredible joy in his presence is tasted here on this earth and is fulfilled in the next. That is the promise he has for us. And so Jesus says, don't be surprised and people are offended by you because of me. And the second thing he has for us is this, is don't be afraid. You need not fear it. You know, as I sat with that pastor in India and I said, man, what is that like? He goes, it's another day. I go, how can you treat it so lightly? And he says, what can they do? Okay, they kill me. I will be sad for my wife and my kids who will mourn my passing, but I will be in the presence of Jesus. So Jesus promises, do not be afraid. In John 16, 33, he says this. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. There's the promise. He follows it up just with this. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You need not fear. The truth is, in Christ, you have everything you need. 
And so we've been talking over these last eight weeks about perspective. And the question this morning that I've been wrestling with this week is, God, what would you have my, my perspective be on this? And how can I get my perspective to be a place where rejoice and be glad? I just, I sat praying this week saying, God, I feel like that's so foreign. God, if that's the bar, how can I ever get to a place where I can rejoice in that? I felt like the Lord said to me this week, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. He said, your position determines your perspective. Your position will determine your perspective. If I really believe that in Christ I have everything I need, if I really believe that Jesus Christ came and gave himself up for me, in doing so, in faith in him, Jesus, God adopts me into his family, places the righteousness of Christ on me and says, you will have eternity with me. If that's the position that I stand in underneath Christ, it radically reshifts my perspective because I realize that in Christ... I have everything I need. And I need not fear. And I need not be surprised. And so this morning as we close, if following Jesus costs you your job, you can rely on the faithful provision of your Heavenly Father. If it causes you to lose a friend, come to Jesus, the one who will never leave your side. If it costs you your health, cling to the great physician. If it costs you your, rest, if it costs you your reputation, rest in the reputation you have. In Christ, if it costs you your family, know that you have a God in heaven. And if following Jesus costs you literally everything and it costs you your life, you can know that in that moment, you will stand before the righteous one who gave his life for you. And you will know joy everlasting. If following Jesus costs you everything, be steadfast. Because the truth is, he's worth it. It's as great as their reward in heaven. Theirs is the kingdom. That's what he promises us. Let's pray. Our breath prayer for this week, if you've been here over the last couple of months, you know every week we've been putting together a what we call a breath prayer. It's a one-sentence prayer that we can keep on our minds and Lift up to God during the week. Our prayer this week is, Jesus, I stand in your reputation. Help me to see you. Let's stand together and we'll, we'll pray that together as I pray it over you. Would you agree in your spirit? Jesus, I will choose to stand in your reputation. Jesus, when your reputation costs me, I will not back down from that. Jesus, when your, your reputation costs me a relationship that matters a lot to me, Jesus, I will trust that you have something better for me. Jesus, when your reputation costs me my job, I will rely on you. Jesus, if your reputation costs me my very life, I trust that in that moment, I will be with you. Help me to see you. Help me to see you. So Jesus, we stand underneath a weighty passage, a heavy Sunday morning. As we feel the weight of a life that will face opposition, 
God, we understand that as we pursue you, as we pursue the things of you, that because of that life, because of our desire for peace between others and you, and because of our desire to be pure in heart, we understand that as we put those two things together, we will inevitably run into opposition, God. And may we not back down. May we be people who are willing to put ourselves out there on behalf of others to say, my friend, you need Jesus. To say, Mom, you need Jesus, and I can't not tell you because the peacemaker in me so longs that you would know the peace I have with God. I can't be quiet about that. And I won't lie and say that your sin doesn't matter. Jesus had to hang on a cross so that your sin could be paid for. Jesus, when sending that message out to my friends and to my co-workers cost me, I would choose to believe in that moment that you are worth it. You are worth it. band leads us here in this song called Forever. It's such an incredible reminder that this life is short. That there is a forever coming. That is the promise of Christ he has for you. As long as sometimes this life feels, right on the other side of it is this incredible joy as you stand in the presence of your Savior. Forever, Jesus will be glorified. And forever, we'll be with him. That's the promise. Let's lift our voices and sing as the team leads us in this.